And now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 4, continuing our study in 2 Samuel. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Rimmon the Berathite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth also was part of Benjamin, because the Berathites fled to Gittaim and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in the feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, as we continue our journey through the life of David, as you have delivered him, as you have been his captain and his conqueror and, and his, his champion, we pray that we would see in all of this the way that you have driven us to Jesus, our king and our friend and our shepherd and our, and, and our mighty warrior. Father, show us Jesus in the life of David and conform us to your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, people of God, I'm so absolutely thankful that you all are here and that the Lord has preserved us. I know a few of you had uh, minor hardships and a few adventures the last couple of days, uh, but um, I'm, I'm so thankful to, to see you all. We'll continue praying for those along the coast and pray for those particularly Wilmington and south to Myrtle Beach and uh, for their lives and property. And it's, it's going to be a long road for many of them. And if there are opportunities that we can serve, let's, let's keep our ear to the ground. And let's keep our ears open for opportunities to help and minister. Uh, living through these kinds of things in Louisiana, of course, we had hurricanes, Rita, Katrina, and several others that uh, barreled through the state. The church was activated and had lots of opportunities to help Lots of opportunities to uh, find ways to minister to people. Uh, you'll find two different kinds of people whenever there's a, a need for work and a need for help. There are those who are there to help, and there are those who are there genuinely to work and to do good. But then there's this, this great cloud of opportunists and scam artists and uh, people who want to take advantage of the situation so that there will be these fly-by-night construction companies that show up and promise to do work and who will take a check and disappear. They'll, they'll take your money and then they'll never come back and do the work. It just tends to be the kind of thing that happens. Whenever there's uh, something, uh, some, some new opportunity to serve or work or do something good, there are those on the ground who are doing the good work and there's a great, a great company of those who are just there for the opportunity and to take advantage. Uh, who, who surround those workers on the edges. And that's very similar to what David's going through in his life right now. David, in his path to the throne, he's been doing the work God has called him to do, but he's been surrounded by this great cloud of opportunists, of, of these people who are always interfering, in fact, with his purposes and his policies. David, from the very beginning, ever since, ever since he was anointed by Samuel, David was determined to be patient on the path that God was leading him toward the throne. David would never grasp for glory, to never go on the offensive against Saul, to never take, take offense against Saul's kingdom or his house, to wait until the Lord delivered everything to him. But from the time David left Saul's house, 
everyone who had any sort of disagreement with Saul, everyone who had any kind of, of beef or any uh, malcontent with Saul's house, they, they joined David. And soon David had a company of malcontents and rebels and revolutionaries. And these guys are always encouraging him to take matters into his own hands, to force the issue, to kill Saul when he has the chance. Look, he's right there in the mouth of the cave. You could just end this all right now and you could kill him. But David, thankfully, never followed their advice. He never listened to them. And so far, since the death of Saul, he has still had to put up with people who look at the death of Saul opportunistically. They, they're seizing upon the chance now to hitch their wagon to David's star to gather fame and glory and power and wealth. So far, we've seen a handful of those in 2 Samuel in just the last two weeks. We saw the Amalekite who took the crown and the bracelet of Saul from the battlefield, and, and he was one such opportunist. Saul's cousin, Abner, who was the captain of Saul's army, and, and Saul's only remaining son, Ishbosheth, man of shame. They attempted to set up their own alternative kingdom in spite of the promises that God made to David that everybody knows by now because everybody quotes the promises. Everybody that, everybody that speaks up, they know the promises that God made to David. Uh, in spite of this, they take this opportunity, this vacuum to, to walk in and set up their own rival kingdom. And then Azahel and Joab, David's nephews, they rose up to face Abner. Azahel was killed by Abner. Joab, David's nephew, killed Abner, Saul's cousin, as well. And we saw that last week as well. So it's this great, uh, it's almost like you've got to keep all this charted and see who's killing who, who's taking advantage of who. You've got to keep a notebook or a legal pad as you read this to see who's on offense and who's on defense. Because everybody has this perspective that if you kill the king's enemies, the king will reward you. That's just the way it works, right? That's the way of the worldly kingdoms. But that's not the way of David. David wants peaceful, gradual, gentle reform. Wait for God to work things out on his own time. But while David's waiting, he's got all these guys creating messes for him. So David deals with the Amalekite rather decisively, right? But David is permissive with Joab his own nephew, and, and his permissiveness with Joab, and he doesn't restrain Joab the way he ought, that sets a bad precedent for others that are going to follow. Chapter 4 introduces us to two. Have you got your legal pad out? We've got two more opportunists. We've got two more wild, crazy men who are trying to take advantage of the situation. Baana and Rechab, two brothers, the two captains of, of Saul's army who were Benjamites. Remember, Saul was a Benjamite, and these are two men from Saul's family, distant relatives uh, who, are, who, are, who, are, who are coming into this vacuum to try to gain favor with David, the new king. Now, Saul's house is weakened considerably. His, his now captain of his army, Abner, is dead. That The whole military structure has collapsed. The only remnant of Saul's kingdom is his worthless son, Ishbosheth, who's not even in the mainland of Israel, right? You know, the Jordan River cuts right through uh, the land of promise. And Ishbosheth is tucked away over in the backwater. He's over, over here in Mahanaim. He's in a different city on the other side of the river. And his heart is failing. And when we, when we open chapter four, the heart of Ishbosheth is failing. He doesn't have any courage left. He lost heart at the news of Abner's death. He's powerless and useless. 
The only other heir to Saul's kingdom is Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who is a cripple. He's an unlikely candidate to be king, and even if he were, he has no claim to the throne because Jonathan ceded his right to the throne to David. He voluntarily gave up his position to David. We're going to hear more from Mephibosheth later, and it's a fascinating, lovely, beautiful story. But know that Mephibosheth is going to be loyal to David. So Saul's house is not strong. There's nothing left here. It, it in fact, is defenseless. And if everyone would just calm down and wait, Ishbosheth likely will make his peace with David. But these revolutionaries, these two young, fiery men, can't wait. They don't take any of this into account, and they can't wait to make their mark. So let's pick up from verse 5. Then the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, these two men, Rechab and Baana, set out, and came about at the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into his house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, and they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain." Bana and Rechab are such mighty warriors that they sneak in and they kill a man in his sleep. Now, Ishbosheth is sleeping in the middle of the day because it's so hot. I know it's been hot enough that you've wanted to take a nap in the middle of the day, but he's the king. He's, he's not working. He's sleeping in the middle of the day, and it's just further evidence for his worthlessness. Uh, but they killed the man. They beheaded him, and then they run all night. They run like somebody's chasing them. But the fact is, nobody's chasing them. Who is his nearest kinsman? Who is his kinsman redeemer who would pursue them? Mephibosheth. And he's lame. He can't pursue them. They're running all night and nobody is chasing them. There is nobody to avenge the assassination of Ishbosheth. Verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And Yahweh has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite. And he said to them, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag the one who I thought would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hang them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Uh, notice how when these two young men get to David, they, they're just great theologians. All of a sudden, they get all theological. They are, in their own words, we are instruments of the Lord's vengeance against this man. Remember what I said last week about contentious men, that, that they think they can do anything they want? And one of the reasons they can do that, and one of the reasons they think that they're an authority and then their own authority, they have this theological disinfectant to spray all over their actions. They can always come up with a theological reason why they do what they do. Sin always seems more pleasant when you can wrap it up in theological distinctions and justifications. 
The problem is these men have a half-baked theology. They don't know all that God has done. They don't know the best parts of the story. They know that Saul was David's enemy and that the house of Saul was rivaling the house of David. That's all they knew and that's what they acted on, that, that Saul had sought David's life. But what they don't get is this part. And this is, is more important than anything that they know. The, the part that they don't get is that just because you have an enemy that, that seeks your life doesn't mean your life is over. Just because there's something bad that's happening to you doesn't mean that that's it for you, that your life is finished. You see, that's the way they're thinking and they're very worldly in their thoughts. They don't understand that the Lord has protected and preserved David's life through all of Saul's terrors. So, so David begins his response. He talks about Yahweh who has redeemed my life from all adversity. You guys didn't need to get excited about my enemies because I'm already under the protection of the Lord. And, and I don't need any tough guys taking initiative and trying to protect me. I've got the Lord on my side. So back it down, pump the brakes. We're going to be okay. Now, there's another news story that they must have missed. They must not have read the headlines. They must have not been watching the news because David reminds them about what happened to the last guy who ran up to him thinking that he had really good news and it was really bad news. You remember what happened to the Amalekite who claimed to have killed Saul and he was seeking a reward? David had him executed on the spot. And, and that could have even might have been justified had, had the Amalekite actually killed Saul, which he didn't, but it might, on the field of battle, you, you might have found some gray area there to work in and say, well, maybe this was some kind of uh, warfare that, that was happening. And David, David thought in very black and white terms, no, not at all. But how much more angry do you think David's going to be when he hears that wicked men have snuck in and killed, these are David's words, killed a righteous man in his house, killed him in his bed? That's an interesting phrase there. David calls Ishbosheth a righteous man. How many of you can think of the person who is your biggest rival and causes you the most aggravation in life and the most heartache? How many of you could call him a righteous man? And yet not only did David do that with Saul all throughout his life, and not only did David weep over Saul, but now David calls Ishbosheth a righteous man. Note he didn't call him the Lord's anointed because he's not. David is the Lord's anointed. He doesn't call him the king because he's not, but he still talks about him in the best way. He chooses not to think the worst of his rivals. David reacted to the death of Ishbosheth the same way that he responded to the death of Saul. These two assassins were wicked men who killed a righteous man, and therefore they had to be purged from the land. They're acting like Canaanites. And what do you do with Canaanites who run crazy and, and cause violence and, and, and don't follow the Lord? Well, you got to purge them for the land, from the land. You also, David, has to do this because once again, nobody's going to believe that David didn't do this. Nobody's going to see this and hear about this and think, oh, David had nothing to do with that. No, he's got to be very clear and communicate in bold type that he had nothing to do with their actions. Now, he weeps and he wails when Joab does very bad things, but he doesn't execute Joab. Why is that? Well, Joab is his nephew, and it's so much more difficult to deal with your own flesh and blood 
than it is to deal with other people's kids. See, it's very easy for him to execute the Amalekite. He's a foreigner. Bana and Rechab, well, they're Benjamites. They're from a different tribe, and, and they're acting crazy, so we're going to put them to death, and we're going to deal with them this way. But Joab is his sister's son. How do you face your sister when you have to deal with your own nephew the way that, that God wants you to deal with him? Much, much, how much more difficult is it to restrain your own sons the way that Eli failed to do, the way that Eli failed to stand up to his sons? That's, so so jo, uh, David, David has to get over that, but he doesn't. These opportunists are making things difficult. And so now's the time for David to be recognized as king over the whole kingdom, and, and he's got to deal with this other thing. And so he has to put these two men to death. Let's pick up in chapter 5 and see how David is uh, anointed king. Chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are bo your bone and your flesh. We are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And Yahweh said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King, king David made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Israel. Judah. Now, remember Abner, before Joab assassinated him, before Joab killed him, Abner, Saul's cousin, had already paved the way. He already, he already kind of uh, greased the skids to get everything moving toward this point. He'd already talked to the elders of the northern tribes. Hey, it's time to make David our king. Well, Abner didn't live to see the ceremony, but they didn't waste any time assembling at Hebron and swearing allegiance to David in a prepared speech. They explained their decision based on three points. They say our ties of kinship are strong. You are our bone and you are our flesh. This is a uh, idiom in Hebrew that we're going to look at in just a few minutes. This means we're brothers. First of all, our, we're brothers. Secondly, David has already proved himself a capable military leader. And thirdly, well, he's got God's approval. So why none of this was obvious to them seven years ago when Saul died is not said. But yet this oath of allegiance is received by David better late than never. You see, now we get the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's been a very long time since the Lord promised that, that David would ascend the throne and take the crown over Israel. And that promise that God made way that long ago has endured through the murderous and hatred intentions of Saul, the, the rebellion of the northern tribes, David's self-seeking so-called friends have all attacked this promise, but God's promise has endured. The Lord's promises are absolutely certain, no matter how much resistance they meet. Well, now we have our king, and so it's time to go get our capital city, verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6 of chapter 5. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. 
Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called, called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. So David went on and became great, and Yahweh God of hosts was with him. Jerusalem was one of the last Canaanite strongholds in the land. And it's inhabited by the tribe of the Jebusites, who feel pretty secure in their walled city. The Jebusites are listed, every time we get a list of all of the nations that, that God once wiped out of the land of Canaan, the, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Mosquitoites, and all the other ites, all of those, the Jebusites are at the end of the list. And, uh, and they're always there and they're always last. All the way back to Genesis 15, you could go back to God's covenant with Abraham. When God lists all the nations that he wants to be dealt with, even back to Genesis 15, he lists the Jebusites. But here the Jebusites have lived in their walled city of Jerusalem, fat and happy, all the way back to the time of Joshua, through the time of the judges, Samuel and Saul. Now, 400 years later, finally, do we have a solution to the Jebusite problem, and his name is David. David is now finishing the conquest that Joshua started. The Jebusites say in their pride, they're in their walled city, they say, okay, if you come in here, even our blind and our lame will defeat you. We will put our blind men and our lame men on the walls to repel you. But David responds to this with a plan. It seems there was a water source that ran under the wall of the city, and then there was a cistern or a well or a shaft that went down to the water source. So if the city were surrounded by armies, if it were under siege, you could still get water. It was an underground water source, and, and there was a shaft. And this is all, there's a few more details in Chronicles. We don't get a lot of details here. Chronicles um, tells us that Joab led the assault. But somehow David says, if somebody could get through that water and up that shaft, we could get into the city. If you could just sneak in there and unlock the doors, I think we can come in, uh, that kind of thing. And so um, they do it. The, the, David just supposes, he says, if somebody could do this, we could get in. And in the very next verse, David is dwelling in the stronghold. So something must have worked there. And David makes this little comment that gives some people ulcers. He says, um, therefore, uh, verse 8, David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Did David hate the blind and the lame? No, it doesn't mean that David despises the disabled because he's going to help Mephibosheth later. He, he loves Mephibosheth and he's going to treat him like a prince. David is just responding to what the Jebusites call themselves. If, if you're going to call yourselves the lame and the blind, if that's who you are, then the blind and the lame are my enemies. That becomes a new nickname for the Jebusites. At least they're spiritually blind because they can't see where they're going, and they're lame because they can't follow or walk in God's law. So they have confirmed their own spiritual condition, and David confirms that, and he says, I'm going to finish the task that my father started, and I'm going to finish the conquest of the land. Now at last, David is in position to take up residence in a city that he's conquered, a city which had no previous established relationship with any one tribe. Now it's the, it's the city that all the tribes can come into, and as the city of David, it is a new point of unity for all the tribes. Now we see that the nations are taking notice. Now that, that um, David has conquered the city of Jerusalem, and now that he's taken up residence there, other nations hear about it. Verse 11, 
Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that Yahweh had established him as king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. During his uh, wilderness years, David learned how to deal with Gentile friends. And as a king, he's going to apply the lessons that he learned during those tough years. And now he's ready to take on new responsibilities. There's a paradigm that I've used several times as we've studied the Old Testament. It seems that God moves us through three distinct phases of maturity as we go uh, from immaturity to full maturity in Christ as a people, as humanity, as, as a church. God starts out man and woman in a garden. That's our, first, that's our first arena of faithfulness. And in the garden, we've got a problem. The problem is a serpent. Well, Adam and Eve failed there, and so they were kicked out to the land. And in the land, what kind of problem was chief there in the land? Well, we had problems with brothers, brother-brother issues. Cain and Abel fight, and uh, Abel dies. Cain is kicked out of the land of Eden out to the world. And out in the world is where the sons of God married the daughters of men. So we've got problems of compromise out there in the world. So really, when you look back at the early chapters of Genesis, we have three falls. We have a fall in the garden. We have a fall in the land. We have a fall in the world. And when the patriarchs come, when Abraham comes, he doesn't fall. He is faithful in the garden sanctuary. He is faithful in the land. He is faithful in the world. I've, I've gone over this paradigm many times, and I know this is just review for, for most of you. Um, what we're seeing here is David succeeding and being faithful once again in the three spheres because David has been anointed three times. David was anointed first by Samuel, the priest, and David was faithful in Saul's house, in the sanctuary, in the walled garden. As a boy, as a youth, he was faithful there. Did he kill a serpent? You bet he did. He killed Goliath. He dealt with the serpent. So he didn't succumb to the serpent. He killed the serpent, crushed his head, took it off with a sword. Now, uh, just a few chapters ago, David was anointed a second time. He was anointed king over Judah, over the land. What kind of problems do we have in the land? Well, we have brother-brother conflict. Was David faithful in brother-brother? Did David have brother-brother conflict? You bet he did. There are other tribes and, and his tribe not getting along, but David was faithful. Now David is anointed the third time as king over all of Israel. And what do we expect to see? Well, the nations start to communicate with David. Hiram, king of Tyre, starts to communicate. And now, now he's dealing with the Gentile nations as a wise, as a wise king. Um, and dealing with the en enemies like the Jebusites. You see David's maturity. In each frame, he is faithful and he's being matured into his role as king. But his path to maturity is not without potholes and speed bumps. Again, as I said last week, we read something great about Saul. I'm sorry, David. We read something wonderful about David and we rejoice and we say, wow, this is really good. And then the very next section, our heart sinks because we read something bad. Verse 13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these were the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Elephelet. More concubines, more wives, more sons, more daughters. Multiplying sons and daughters is a sign of strength. Multiplying sons and daughters is a sign of blessing. Multiplying wives is a sign of stupidity and a sign of sin. And David is both blessed with children, but 
He's creating cracks, as I said last week, cracks in the foundations of his kingdom. Uh, of course, some children are mentioned here that aren't even born yet, uh, but this is a problem that's going to plague David throughout his life. Well, the Philistines hear what's going on. David is now in Jerusalem. The Philistines can't let this happen. The Philistines can't let Israel unite and be strong. And so now the Philistines attack in verse 17. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves into the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of Yahweh saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? You see, David is doing the opposite of Saul. David is asking, what do you want, Lord? What do you want me to do? And Yahweh said to David, go up for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, Yahweh has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim or, or master of the breakthroughs. And they left their images there and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore, David inquired of Yahweh and he said, you shall not go up. You see, it's a different answer this time. You can't assume that the answer is always going to be the same. So David asks again, should we go up? And Yahweh says, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then Yahweh will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as Yahweh commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Several things going on here. One of the promises that the Lord made to David uh, is that um, under David, he would conquer uh, the, the Philistines. He would subdue the Philistines. It's a promise he made to Israel that under David, he would subdue the Philistines. So it's no surprise that from early on, we see the Philistines. And we see how David's leadership of the military is different from Saul's. David depends on the Lord's direction and guidance instead of ignoring it. David asks, should I go? Are you going to deliver me? And the Lord says, yeah, I will deliver you. I will do it. And then he says again, Lord, should I go? And he says, no, not this time. I, wanted, I want you to do something different. Uh, so uh, David asks and he hears the Lord. He's not, he's not leaning on his own strength the way Saul did. And then there's no doubt when the victory happens that it's very clearly the Lord's power that defeats the Philistines. Unlike Saul, who depended upon the strength of his own spear, David readily acknowledges who is beating his enemies. In verse, in verse 20, David went to Belperazim and, and David defeated them there. And he says, Yahweh has broken through my enemies before me. Yahweh has done this. The Lord has done this. Uh, uh, for me. The Lord leads his armies out and he defeats the idol worshipers. When they get there on the field of battling to defeat the Philistines the first time, they drop their idols. Now, what happened back in the very first pages of 1 Samuel? Remember, uh, Israel was not calling on Yahweh's name. They weren't asking him what they should do. Instead, they drag the Ark of the Covenant out as if it's some, um, you know, good luck charm, and they lose it in battle to the Philistines. And the, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence goes out with the Ark of the Covenant, and he defeats Dagon himself. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant back on, on, on a cart uh, carried by two, pulled by two cows. Everything's being reversed now. On this battlefield, the Philistines drop their good luck charms. They drop their idols. They abandon them and run away. And David and his men seize their idols. But these gods of wood and stone, these perverse little toys, are not going to deliver themselves. 
Uh, I mean, if they put this in front of the Ark of the Covenant, it's not going to knock over the Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, God is going uh, to, to demonstrate there is no power in these whatsoever. The battle takes place in two stages. In the first one, David and his men launch a full-on frontal assault against the Philistines, and they break through their lines like water. Who are the Philistines? Remember? They're sons and daughters of Egypt. Uh, always think of Egypt when you think of Philistines. And so this breaking through like water kind of reminds us of the Red Sea, doesn't it? So here they're defeated once again, like as God defeated the Egyptians through the Red Sea. They run away, they regroup, and the second time David says, what should we do? The Lord says, no, don't do a frontal assault, circle around behind them. And when you see and hear the wind blowing through the tops of the trees, I'm going to make it sound like an army is marching. And this grove where the Philistines are hiding out, they're going to hear you, but they're also going to hear the wind. And they're not going to know where you are. They're not going to know where the enemy is coming from. So the Philistines were terrified and confused. They were not certain from which direction the attack was coming. And they were driven back to their lands. So early on in his life, David... In, in, his, in his life as king, God is pointing out um, that, that he is the champion, he is the warrior, he is the hero that wins our battles for us. He's pointing us to the fact that, that our king who fights for us, who wins our battles, who crushes our enemies and, and makes them drop our idols is, is Jesus, David's greater son. Jesus is mighty in battle. And at the same time, Jesus is patient and gentle with his brothers. David was patient and gentle the whole time that he was dealing with Saul's house. In David, we are being pointed to Jesus. And the way that God protects David's kingdom is the way that God protects his church and leads it to triumph. Now think back with me on just the two or three minutes we have left. Think back with me to how the elders of Israel referred to David at the beginning of chapter 5. They said, when they anoint him, they said, we are your bone and your flesh. We are your bone and your flesh. That's a popular phrase in Hebrew, and you see it several times in the Bible. And whenever that phrase comes up, someone is saying, I'm your brother. You're my brother. We're brothers. I'm your bone and your flesh. We, we're one family. We are the same people. We're not of different bone. We're not of different flesh. But where's the first time that that's used? Where, where's the first time we hear that construction, bone and flesh? Well, it's back in the garden, isn't it? When David proclaims over Eve, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What is, what is David, I'm sorry, what is Adam saying there when he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh? After all day, he spent looking at other kinds of creatures and animals, and there's no helper suitable for him among all these other creatures. Finally, he says, Eve, and says, Eve, okay, this is my kind. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She belongs to me, and I belong to her. And, and this is my, in, in fact, what he's saying is, this is my sister. Now, now um, he's not saying this in some perverse way, but that under God, uh, as our father, she is like me. We are, we are one. Under God, uh, Eve is my sister. And so, and so under God, Eve was Adam's sister before she was his wife. Now, now it's after this, right after this, the very next verse that God says, okay, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they should become one flesh. So their relationship under God as brother and sister is, is primary. Each one a child of God. 
He has God as his father. She has God as her father. And so this brother-sister relationship is foundational to marriage. And this has all kinds of, of, of implications for the marital relationship. Your husband is your brother in Christ. Your, your wife is your sister in Christ. And yet we think somehow that you know, sins against certain brothers and sisters are acceptable because we're married, it puts those sins in a different category, right? Uh, we, we think maybe we're called to love our brothers and sisters and be at peace with them. Um, unless we're married to them, then we get a pass. We get to sin against them in all kinds of cruel ways, but we just call it mar mar marital difficulties, and it, and it takes on a whole other, a whole other category. Um, but in Christian marriage, we view our, si our wives as our sisters in Christ. You understand that, right? This is not new information, right? Wives, you understand your husbands are your brothers in Christ. See, in an, in an Islamic view of marriage, in a pagan view of marriage, the man is a master and the wife is his slave. But in the Christian view, they're primarily brother and sister. And so if you don't love your wife as your sister in Christ, you are in rebellion against God. If you don't love your husband as your brother in Christ, you are in rebellion against God. Five times in the Song of Solomon, Solomon proclaims his love for, he says, my sister, my wife. Five times, he, he says in one place, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my wife. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. You have ravished my heart. So. What is, what's this got to do with David? You see, this bone of bones and flesh of flesh language between David and Israel means that not only is he brother to them, he is, he is their king and, and Israel is his kingdom. David is a brother to Israel. He's one of them, most certainly, but he's also a husband to Israel and Israel is his bride. And this is a theme throughout the Bible's instructions on, on kings and kingdoms, which is one of the reasons why kings can't multiply wives, right? He has to be faithful to his wife, as faithful to his wife as he is to the kingdom. Infidelity in his family implies infidelity to his kingdom and the God of the kingdom, as we see played out later in the book of Kings. Furthermore, you know, all of this is relevant because it all points us to Jesus. All of this points us to Jesus. Jesus is not just our king. He is also our brother. He is also our husband. After his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to his apostles and he says, why are you troubled? This is after the resurrection, Jesus in his glorified body. He says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. He's showing them his resurrected body. He's not a ghost, but that he's real. He's physical. He has flesh and bone. He's using the same idiom there. And he's saying, you're participating in my resurrection by your union with me. You will have the same resurrected, glorified existence. And so Jesus says to us, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This resurrected, glorified, ascendant body 
is yours as well. You have the same hope. You and I are one. We get the same thing in our resurrection that Jesus received in his. Jesus is our brother. Jesus is our husband. Jesus is our king. He is our protector and he is our defender. And all of this is packed in when Israel says to David, you're bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. We're together. All of this is packed in and points us to Jesus. When we join Jesus in his campaign, when we put on the armor he supplies us, he leads us out in victory over his enemies. They drop their idols at the sound of his mighty hosts. So people of God and children of God, we're not these opportunists and hangers on who, who, who run ahead and run sideways using worldly tactics and worldly warfare, continually making messes and creating habit, stirring up violent revolution. We stay in line, we stay in rank, obediently behind our king, submitting to him as our husband, as our brother, as our savior. We follow him on his steady, patient conquest over the world. And that's the image we hear, uh, we have here from David. This is Jesus leading us in our victory over the Philistines and the, the idolaters that we face. Let's pray. Father, grant us this, this strength and this confidence in our Lord and Savior Jesus as our mighty warrior. May we not fear, may we not ever be tempted to, uh, to, to use worldly tactics of warfare and, and, uh, and, and to be contentious for the sake of contentiousness and, and hateful for the sake of hatefulness, but may we just follow right behind our champion, our hero, our savior and friend, Jesus. We pray that you would continually show us what this means, continue to correct us and, and develop in us this maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.